I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 87th Texas Legislature. This week, bending toward justice. It's true but not accurate that a nationwide reckoning on race followed the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25th, 2020. The reckoning has been going on for decades. But we as a nation and we as human beings have surely spent the last year in what Dr. King might have called a fierce urgency of now moment. No time for apathy or complacency, a time for vigorous and positive action. The role of police brutality in Mr. Floyd's death is set to be decided in a month when fired officer Derek Chauvin stands trial. But whether there are reforms required in the criminal justice system, whether we're doing enough to acknowledge and confront systemic racism needs no litigating. The question is which reforms, at whose direction, and by whose hand. Tragically, George Floyd's name is not the only one we're implored to say when we talk about the hard work yet to be done. But as a Texan, raised in Houston and buried in Pearland, he is a special spur to action. Last August, two months after his death, the Texas Legislative Black Caucus unveiled its plans for the George Floyd Act, a sweeping police reform proposal that has since been introduced as a bill in the 2021 session. It would ban chokeholds across the state and require law enforcement officers to intervene if another officer is using excessive force on the job. The Floyd Act tops what is shaping up to be an ambitious criminal justice agenda for the 87th. There's also bail reform, name checked by Governor Greg Abbott as an emergency item in his state of the state speech. There's public safety funding, or if you're writing a campaign ad, defunding the police, another Abbott emergency. There are the many ways in which marijuana laws could be overhauled, as much of an uphill battle as that might be in a place like this. One wonders about bandwidth. How much attention will be paid to such issues in a session overwhelmed by the budget and redistricting and limited in scope by a lingering pandemic. To find out, to game out what's possible in the next four months, I talked this week with five-term state representative, Nicole Collier, Democrat of Fort Worth, just named by Speaker Dade Phelan to a second term as chair of the House Criminal Jurisprudence Committee and recently chosen by her colleagues to chair the Black Caucus. More than any member of the lower chamber, Chair Collier has her finger on the pulse of members and leaders as it becomes clear how much progress is possible. She hopes a lot, but her idealism is tempered by realism, as she told me on the morning of Monday, February 8th, day 28 of the 140. Point of Order is supported by Sam Houston State University, ranked as one of the best valued online colleges in Texas. Details at shsu.edu and Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Proud to support this conversation because public dialogue and civic engagement are important and play a role in improving the health of Texans. Do we have a problem with the police in this country? Oh, that's a loaded question there. Do we have a problem with the police? I. <laughs> I won't say that there's a problem with the police because they have a, uh, you know, meaningful function, and for the most part, all of the law enforcement officers 
do uh, a great job of executing their job, uh, their work, but there are some officers who violate policy and don't have the the same type of uh, desire to uphold um, the morality and and expectations uh, that people have for them. So you wouldn't paint all police with the same brush, but you think there is a subset of the overall law enforcement community that needs to be doing a better job than it's doing now? Yeah, I, I do believe that there's some officers who just violate policy, who don't uphold it. And it may be something that can be trained and it may not be something that could be trained. Maybe we need to do a you know better job of selecting who should who who is el- uh, eligible to be an officer. Yeah. Is is this a problem? Again, you said it's loaded, but to the extent that we identify a problem here, even if it's with a subset, uh, is, is this something that can be fixed? Are you confident that if we put our attention to it, that we could fix it? I mean, I don't know 100%, but, you know, the Sunset Commission identified some issues with the Texas Commission on Law Enforcement uh, that, you know, show that they don't have much teeth. So when they do identify uh, a rogue officer, it, it, it's challenging for them to just completely eliminate them from the force. So, you know, there are some some steps that we can take to reduce the occurrence of these violations from these law enforcement officers. But uh, in terms of completely eliminating them, I mean, we all have to be responsible for our own actions and, and you know, no, nothing different for law enforcement officers. What's preventing us from making whatever the fixes necessary are? I mean, I, I want to ask you if the problem can be fixed. I also want to ask you who can fix it, assuming it can be. Is it you in government? Is it you in the state legislature? Is it people in a state agency? I mean, who, who is responsible for the problem? And if there's a problem that's not being fixed, what are the obstacles to getting it fixed? And see, this is the thing. I don't think that it's a government fix because we don't always control everything a person does. I mean, we have human interaction and we have to rely on law enforcement officers to uphold their their duties. And if that particular person is not capable of doing that, then they are, uh, you know, violating the standards, they're not meeting the standards. So I, I really believe that we could put some training together, we can uh, look at the selection process, but in terms of human interaction, in terms of individual responsibility, we don't control that all the time. We, we don't have 100% control. So just like with Sandra Bland, you know, that officer had been trained, and, and but it still escalated, and it was up to that person to control their reaction and emotions. So I think that there's only so much we can do as government officials. Yeah. So so the idea of preparing young recruits for their time on the job or training of people within law enforcement organizations, that can only take you so far. At the end of the day, it gets down to values and it gets down to the individual. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I saw, uh, Chair Collier, in looking at the list of bills that you filed for this session, that you've authored one, and you said before the session that you intended to do this, that would require implicit bias training for peace officers. What it sounds like you're trying to do, I hope you'll talk about that, what it sounds like you're trying to do is make sure that there are at least good inputs, right, on the front end of this before, right. we, before, before we get to a situation that you can't undo. Right. And so, you know, there were times when officers, you know, I looked at this cultural diversity training and it, it wasn't very, um, 
you know, you couldn't really tell what they were being taught. So we could write a bill and say, we want you to teach uh, or train on cultural diversity. But what does that program look like? Maybe it has no substance. So we need to really get down to it and look at what's in, innately in somebody. You know, we have these implicit biases, all of us do, uh, you know, to a different degree. And so we have to be able to expose them, uncover them, and then be willing to address them and acknowledge them and work on them. And so that's what we're trying to do. So um, Chair Coleman, Gar Garnett Coleman out of Houston, a uh, member of the Texas Legislative Black Caucus, he has already filed legislation in the past. That was part of the Sandra Bland Act. Uh, so I, I just filed it because it's important for my district as well, because I really believe implicit bias had something to do with a Tatiana Jefferson, who, who uh, was in my district uh, when she was killed. I think yep. that, you know, an officer walking up into a neighborhood that he wasn't familiar with, uh, it's predominantly black. And so if you have these innate uh, emotions or our understandings of a particular area, you may come in with fear and they may heighten your, your response unnecessarily. And it might be unreasonable, which it was. And so, so I think that it's training as well. So currently that kind of training is not required of police officers. Well, I, I take, well, so over the interim, uh, Chair Coleman spoke with T. Cole and they said that they were going to. That uh, is Texas Commission on Law Enforcement? Yes, yes. Yeah. They were going to implement a implicit bias training program. So they, they are supposedly doing that now. I don't know what it looks like, but yeah. it's something that they're supposedly doing now. So that that was, of course, after after Tatiana Jefferson, uh, after all the other individuals who have been uh, killed with law enforcement interactions. Yeah. Do, do you believe that the problem is race, uh, uh, Chair Collier, that law enforcement is racist, systemically racist? Or is it about, again, individuals who might be uh, racist? Well, the whole criminal justice system has systemic racism uh, bleeding throughout the whole system, bleeding throughout it. Uh, you know, from the time somebody's arrested to the time that somebody is taken to trial and then the ultimate sentencing that that person receives. I think that there is racism in that process, uh, whether it is deliberate or unintentional, it's there. And I won't say that law enforcement officers are racist or the law enforcement system is racist. I think that there are systems in place that uh, support uh, targeting people of color more than other races. And uh, is it intentional or unintentional in your mind? Well, that's what I said. It, it could be un unintentional. There could be just like the first, uh, do you remember the three strikes? It, it sounded good. You know, yeah. go after somebody who's a habitual criminal, but then it had unintended consequences and it really harmed people of color. So yeah. you can go in with the best intentions, but then you don't realize all of the the backlash or all of the potential obstacles or, or you know, outcomes that could happen with your your piece of um, legislation or, so or go, your policy. So I go back to what I asked you earlier. Is this fixable? You know, if you say that there are aspects of the system that are racist, that the criminal justice system has racism in it. The hope is that you can build out of that. And I'm asking you, I guess, as the chair of a committee charged with looking at so many of these issues, is there a fix here or are we resigned to the situation persisting to some degree or another going forward? Well, I mean, until you root out um, biases and in, in individuals, 
uh, you're never going to fix it 100%, but we could at least reduce the um, disparities, uh, level the playing field. That's what we want to do. My goal is to see that happen. And we can do that by implementing various policies, but as a government, we can't fix it everything. Is it good, Chair Collier, that we're having the conversation? I mean, I guess one of the byproducts of what's been an awful year on this subject is that we are talking about it more pervasively and more frequently, and that one hopes talking about it will at least draw attention to the problem and create motivation to solve it. Yeah, right. I mean, you don't, you can't fix a problem until you realize you have one. So, you know, there are more and more people that have come to that realization that, yes, uh, in fact, Let's let's talk about collecting data because, you know, there are people of color who know and, and we know that there are are uh, others that like us that get sentenced, harsher sentences. Yeah. Uh, but the data needs to be there to support that. Uh, and so once we get the data going, we can show them, uh, you know, look, people of color, color are sentencing sentences. Uh, their sentences are longer. Um, they're you know, they're when you're over-policing in particular areas, yeah. of course you're gonna have uh, times where you know, you're arresting uh, people of color. You know, it, it, the fact is, is that you know, people of color, black people in particular, we only make up about 13% of the Texas population, but we're a third of the prison population. In jails and prisons, we represent a third. So we are over-represented in the criminal justice system. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about the George Floyd Act, which was a byproduct, again, of what we saw happen over the last year. Hard work done by a number of people to put this uh, bill together since been introduced. It was announced the plans for it in the fall uh, uh, and now subsequently has been introduced. uh, uh, Mrs. Thompson's carrying it in the House, Senator West in the Senate. Will you join in the effort to get this bill through? I, I know the Black Caucus, which you chair, has been behind the the points in this bill. Will you personally work this bill along with Mrs. Thompson? Oh yes, definitely. This is a a, a great bill. Um, in fact, I, I know that even Senator Miles has filed individual ones that are similar to this. So we definitely need to push this. I don't know if it'll come through the Criminal Jurisprudence Committee. Right. I hope it would, but there's a lot of uh, law enforcement aspects to it, and sometimes those bills tend to go to Homeland uh, Security. So I'm hoping that it would come to. Um, why, why, Chair Collier, would a bill on this subject not go through your committee? It seems like something that would be tailor made for your committee. I know, but I don't get to decide which ones come to the committee. But um, right. there were some some uh, peace officer or law enforcement bills that I felt last session should have came to the CJ committee, criminal jurisprudence, yeah. but they didn't. So, you know, we did have like the limiting arrest for fine only nonviolent offenses that did come through there. But, you know, there's other um, law enforcement aspects about pretextual stops that may kick it towards Homeland. Whose decision will it be which committee it goes to? As it always is, it'll be the speaker's decision, right? Right, right, right. But I'm going to I'm going to request it, of course. Have you talked to him about it yet? No, 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 not yet. I just found out I got the committee back, so I'm pretty excited to be back. Right. Now, we, we know that uh, James White, who formerly chaired the Corrections Committee, chairs Homeland Security and Public Safety, correct? Yes. Have you talked to Chairman White about this bill? Do you know if he supports it? I have not talked to him about this bill. We 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 exchanged calls, text messages. We missed each other, but we're, we're trying to connect. Okay. Um, 
Let me ask you specifically on the Floyd Act, if you if you don't mind, uh, the refor- the principal reforms in the Floyd Act. I mean, there are a number of things in there, but the things that really jump out at me are the banning of chokeholds and the duty to intervene right on on the part of officers who witness another officer doing something he or she should not. Are those the right reforms and are those enough? So uh, I think that they're in a, uh, they are in the right direction. They have the ability to effectuate positive change. So the thing is, is that, you know, when you, you talk to law enforcement officers, they within the ranks, they say, we don't see color. We just see blue. So when you're talking about, you know, uh, officer to officer, they're going to you know stand together as a blue code. You know, they're that blue code. So we want to make sure that we've got to start chiseling that away and let them know that your blue code is violating people. Uh, You have to be able to say something if you see something and then be held accountable if you don't. Who will oppose the ban on chokeholds, do you think? Who will oppose the duty to intervene? Will there be a fight over these issues? Those things seem to the outsider, to me, to a civilian, to be elemental. I mean, they seem normal, they seem right. And especially in view of the circumstances of last of the last year, it seems like the least we could be doing. Where will the objection be to this, Chair Collier? Well, I mean, this the George Floyd Act is one comprehensive bill. And right. so if somebody's gonna come attack it, they're gonna come attack, attack you know, pieces of it. And it may not be those pieces. I mean, one thing that you know, law enforcement officers, when I've talked to them, they need that flexibility. They wanna have flexibility, they said. That was the whole thing about limiting arrest. They said, we wanna be able to arrest, even though the bill did allow that. Um, but they, they claim you know, they want this flexibility. And so I'm not sure about you know, the ones that have been in, 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 for, in the force all this time, uh, who, are, who are used to doing chokeholds, uh, but I know that there's certain cities that have banned it already. I believe Dallas and Harris, uh, Houston have already banned chokeholds. So, you know, how are they working out with that? You know, is it a problem? Uh, it's just, you know, basic human um, dignity, you know, respecting somebody and not harming them in that way. Have the members of the caucus who are behind this bill, uh, have you had any conversation with the, uh, with the police associations, law enforcement associations to ask T-Call or anybody else if they'll support this bill with you? I've talked to uh, some law enforcement officers. Yeah, I talked to, uh, what is it, TMPL. uh, And then I've talked to the Nobel, Noble, which is the um, Black Law Enforcement Officers Association. Uh, And what what are you hearing, support or not support? Well, I mean, there's certain aspects of it, uh, like qualified immunity, they don't support that. uh, that that's going to be something that is is subjective in their mind and that it could be taken out of context. So qualified immunity means that if an officer is not acting under color of law or, you know, in the scope and course of their employment, they could be held liable individually. Yeah. And so they, they're saying that that uh, reduces the, um, you know, re- it reduces people participation uh, reduces participation in law enforcement. So they may not be able to attract uh, all the law enforcement officers that they like because of this one provision. You know, again, s- speaking as a civilian here, as somebody without a lot of experience with law enforcement or knowledge of, of this process, it occurs to me that just as in journalism, the bad journalists make the good journalists uh, uh, look bad and look, make the industry look bad. 
I would imagine that from the perspective of law enforcement, that they would want bad cops rooted out, that they would want bad law enforcement out because bad law enforcement and bad cops tend to tarnish the view that the public has of all law enforcement and undermines their ability to do the job they're there to do. I wouldn't disagree with that. But that's not necessarily what you're hearing. Well, just because as an outsider, you know, I, I don't know everything that it takes to be a law enforcement officer. I don't know everything that they go through every day. I've done a ride along, but that was yeah. one day. So right. in terms of these provisions that we are, uh, you know, implementing based on community input, based on what we know and our experiences, um, it may not be what they feel is, is necess necessary. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, there's just a difference of opinion. We These are measures that we believe can reduce disparities and, and reduce, um, you know, law enforcement um, violence, interact, violent interactions with law enforcement. So, you know, these are things that were the steps that were taken. Did you see yesterday, Chair Collier, the Dallas Morning News editorial board came out for strengthening the statewide no hire list for bad officers? How do you feel about that? Well, that's something that even um, Chair Harold Dutton uh, and Chair uh, Joe Deschatel had been talking about. You know, the problem is, is that what they're seeing is that law enforcement officers who have violated some type of policy or, or the law even, uh, they can just, you know, leave that one post and then go to another instead of eliminating their, their uh, or removing their badge completely. So there, there has to be a point where we say enough is enough. This officer is not qualified, equipped, or capable of fulfilling their duties, and they must not be in that position. Um, on the accountability uh, question, uh, Chair, what do you think about another piece of legislation, the Botham Jean Act? This is introduced by Representative Sherman in the House. I think Senator West is carrying it in the Senate. This is specifically about body cameras, right? This is something that I think the governor has actually called out in his budget. You know, we need to provide more funding for, for, for body cameras. Is this a good bill? Would you say something uh, about this? And are you going to uh, have this come through your committee ideally as well? I would hope that that bill comes through my committee. Uh, but, you know, the thing about the Botham John Act is that not only does it talk about making sure that your camera stays on, but it also talks about the Castle Doctrine and being able to use it appropriately. You know, what we saw in Dallas County with uh, the officer that killed Botham John, she tried to allege that she could use the Castle Doctrine because she mistakenly thought she was in her house. And this bill just clears that up. No mistake of fact will, uh, if you have a mistake of fact, it does not allow you to use the castle doctrine. Yeah, right. Uh, and again, this is something that on its face, from an accountability standpoint, seems like a, a basic, right? Something that nobody should object to. Well, nothing's um, basic. I mean, you know how they get, you know, somebody's gonna find something wrong with it, uh, I'm sure. But this is something that we strongly believe in. Uh, yeah. that it is necessary to yeah. clean up. Yeah, I mentioned the governor uh, in his budget called this out. You know, he, he has had a fair amount to say about uh, criminal justice matters uh, over the last couple of weeks as we get into the session and with the state of the state speech. I want to ask you about a couple things because obviously you're chair of this committee in the House. There's a chair in the Senate that uh, will have his own point of view as chair Whitmire does about these matters. And, you know, it's going to ultimately land with the governor if you are, are able to move legislation and, and, and 
you know, his role in this is not insignificant. Governor said in his State of the State speech, we can't ignore the need to improve policing. This session, we must provide law enforcement with the tools and training they need to ensure the safety that their communities deserve. We've already talked about tools and training, but you all are in sync about that. I mean, you agree that training is important and that we have to work on training. That could be an area of bipartisan agreement. Well, yes, uh, the concept, yes, but what to what degree? I think that you know there, there's something that uh, he may be saying this, but he only means that. So we just need to get on the same page in terms of what that training looks like. Do you know and, what specifically he's talking about, Chair? Well, he, he, he does acknowledge that officers need to have uh, training for, uh, you know, the, the basic qualifications to become an officer. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of um, one thing that, you know, we do agree on is that we don't want to defund the police. Uh, there's no one in the Texas Legislative Black Caucus who has called for defunding the police. What we'd like to see is collaborative policing. And what we mean by that is that law enforcement work with uh, the mental health providers, social workers, or, or whomever, and, and they work together, but they all need to be funded. They all need to be funded to do the work for the community. And so that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about defunding the police. And so uh, when he talks about anybody who defunds the police could have their tax rate uh, reduced or so forth, it, it's just confusing because we don't know what that looks like. If, if a, a Oh, go ahead. Well, so I wonder about that because he's he called it out as an emergency item. Obviously, he thinks this is an urgent issue, right? That there's this move to 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 cut the police budgets in the state. And I just keep thinking, is, is that really the case? I mean, this seems like a political issue more than a substantive issue because I'm not seeing a lot of calls or really any calls to quote defund the police. Right. I think it's just a sensational term of art that uh, he can you know, use to uh, pro, uh, incite his base. Uh, but it's really, I don't know too many law enforcement offices, uh, law enforcement departments that are having their budget cut. I mean, remember we cut DPS's budget, I think it was in 2017. And so- Was that, you know, was that defunding DPS? Yeah, def they, they, yes, they lost money. They said that they had to- yeah. um, they couldn't keep on maybe almost a hundred officers. So, you know, yeah. they, the state has done it. What's different, in, you know, between then and now. So sure. I think it's just really uh, usurping local control. Couldn't the governor say, Chair Collier, that if you don't believe in defunding the police, what's the harm in putting legislation in that says if anybody attempts to defund the police X, Y, Z? I mean, you all passed a bill, if I'm not mistaken, a couple of sessions ago, uh, it was like a belt and suspenders law, uh, uh, ma making sure that there was no income tax in Texas. Well, there already is no income tax in Texas. I believe it's unconstitutional to have an income tax in Texas. So why would you need a law to say what's already the case? I mean, he could make the argument, OK, you don't believe in defunding the police. Great. Put your money where your mouth is. Support this legislation that would provide consequences if a city attempted to do that. I know, but he hasn't explained what it looks like. What is defunding the police? So if I take from, uh, you know, a budget and put it into B budget, which is still a part of the law enforcement, but it promotes collaborative policing. Right. Then have I defunded the police? What does he mean by that? I mean, is it moving from one pot to another, but still has the uh, effect of protecting the safety of the public? 
or is he saying you cannot even do that? Yeah, I mean, he'll have to say what qualifies as as defunding. And then we get into what you said earlier, which is a local control issue, right? Not uncommon for this legislature where the state wants to tell cities not only what they can do, but how they can do it. Right. right? And, and I'm just not willing right now to get on board yeah. with defunding the police uh, push until I see what it means. Yeah. Um, let me go back to training for a second, uh, Chair Collier. I think at the time of the Atiana Jefferson shooting, you said that you thought there needed to be specifically de-escalation training. Is that right? That's That's one kind of training you would like to see done. Yeah, oh yeah, we, we need to see some efforts to, just like in, in um, and there is de-escalation training, but we when you look at it, it may not be sufficient. So yeah, yeah. when you're looking at the Sandra Bland uh, situation, there should have been a de-escalation uh, yeah. part uh, by the law enforcement officer. How, how much of this is, uh, is every department, every community deciding for themselves and how much of it is standardized. You, you talked to my colleague Alex Samuels in our preview of the 87th legislative session last fall, and this is what you said. We have different police departments with different policies. We want to aim to provide uniformity, some type of consistent system that people in Texas can look to and say, this is what is expected of our law enforcement officers all across the state. It sounds like some kind of standard set of training protocols is what you're after. Well, I mean, we already have the basic training. Yes, the thing. This is the thing. In order to legitimize and to um, have a, a law enforcement uh, or criminal justice system that people trust and believe in, there has to be some type of consistency in that you can expect the same outcomes. So that means that if if somebody is arrested in Travis County, they won't get a chokehold. But if they're arrested in I don't know, Williamson County, maybe they have a, tro a chokehold system. So, I mean, we have to have some type of uniformity and so that people can start trusting law enforcement more and have a, a you know, a level of expectation of what to, um, what, what will be provided to them uh, going forward. Right, right. All right. Um let me ask you about another one of the governor's emergency items, Chair, and that is uh, bail reform. Governor says we have a broken bail system that recklessly allows dangerous criminals back onto the streets. He wants to elevate this conversation within the legislature. What do you say about that? We do need to address bail. Bail is broken. Uh, we rely on cash money bail uh, way too much. Uh, so, now he so may be attacking it at a different angle than what we're looking at. Um, you know, we had this bill last session, my first session as chair of the Criminal Jurisprudence Committee. This was a bill, uh, Andy Mer uh, Chair Murr, Andrew Murr had filed the bill and then come along later on, um, Representative uh, Casal, he filed a similar bill. Uh, but, you know, Representative uh, Chair Murr had been working on it from the prior session. And so I had a learning curve to see where they were. I wanted to really dive into this um, the, um, what was it called? The, it was the thing, uh, the, the uh, system where you, you know, used to judge people it was some algorithm that they yeah. used. And so I wanted to delve into that. They used certain criteria to help the officer determine whether they were, I mean, help the judge uh, determine whether that person should have a uh, bond and, and what type of bond. And so my problem, uh, we went back and forth on this bill and we finally hammered it out 
and, and I was very involved. Uh, the problem where we reached an impasse was what, how much of a, uh, how long of a criminal history would the judge look at? And the governor's office wanted all of the person's criminal history. And I felt like it should be limited to 10 years. And so we kept going back and forth and it stalled the bill um, because I, I don't believe it's fair to just look at somebody's criminal history from the day one. I think that people have evolved. So let's just look at more recent um, events. And um, so you have, any, you have any reason to believe the governor has moved on that or have you moved on that or are we going to have the same impasse this time as we had last time? As of now, I have not moved on it. But you're open to having a conversation. Mm. Oh, yes, I'll have a conversation about it. Yeah, I, I did, that, that noise didn't make me very optimistic that the governor's point of view is going to prevail here. We'll see. <laughs> um, uh, we're uh, I have a few minutes left. I want to ask you about a couple things still uh, to come here. Are we going to talk about marijuana in a serious way this session and, and the degree to which marijuana is, um, is a component of the criminal justice system, how it interacts with the criminal justice system, or are we, are we just going to pretend to talk about it and then end up in the same place we always seem to in the state, which is nowhere? Well, you know what? We, we made headway on that bill. That was the first time that bill got out of committee. And even the governor signaled uh, a um, inclination. He gave us some some um, he gave us some hope because he said that, you know, there are certain times where he would agree with it. You know, he would see that bill through, but it got held up in the Senate and Lieutenant Governor Patrick said he was not going to pass it regardless of what it looked like. So. Uh, unless he's changed, the bills may have the same fate, unfortunately, um, if we could, you know, just look at decriminalizing it at least. Your, your openness on that issue is no different than it was last time. But again, the institutional reality of it's got to also pass the Senate, that may be the ultimate decider here. Right, right. Yeah. What else is on your mind? What is another big item on your mind for the committee? So, something in the realm of criminal justice reform that you think you would like to see a serious conversation about this session? Well, you know, the COVID, you know, some of the things that, you know, with COVID-19 and this pandemic, we, we've seen delays in, in the uh, process of, of ju uh, the judicial process. And so I yes. want to look and see how this is impacting the criminal justice system, how our, our prisons are being impacted. Uh, even with probation, you know, we, we are risking uh, our probation officers and uh, our jailers, uh, you know, being exposed to um you know, COVID-19 and, and these situations. So let's look at alternatives, like with more virtual uh, programs uh, with probation, more virtual programs with, with trials. Yeah. Uh, maybe not trials, I don't know. Well, I'll, I'm willing to study it though, but let, let's look at some ways that we can provide alternatives and then look at reducing criminal penalties for certain nonviolent offenses and getting people more help. Got it. Uh, and you think there'll be an openness within your committee to talking about this? Well, yeah, because I'll bring them up. Yeah, that's one <laughs> of the things. It's good to be the king, right? That's how this goes. Uh, you get to be the chair. Um, uh, chair Collier, how much of this stuff that we've talked about today is going to happen? How much of it is just talk? How much of it will become law in your mind. Do you have a commitment from Speaker Phelan to move any one or another of these proposals to the floor? The theory of the case of the session is that because of the unusual nature of it related to the coronavirus, the limited attention span, the limited access 
to hearings and testimony and to the building and to members and all that, that there may be a much smaller agenda overall for the legislature. And so then the question is what gets on the agenda and what doesn't? How serious do you think this subject will be taken during this session? Well, you know, bail was not an emergency item last session, I don't believe. And so it is this session. I think that the governor is going to really work to make sure that his uh, initiatives get to the floor. And yeah. I, I agree that this is a slower session um, and, you know, it's going to be very tight. Uh, I even looked at my bills and I said, wow, I hope I can at least pass one of my bills. And I, I've, I've filed several. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's going to be a limited session. Uh, if if uh, Speaker Phelan uh, is like uh, the former Speaker Bonin in terms of how he handled committees, he was not a micromanager. I, I didn't have the Speaker, you know, overseeing every little thing that was done in the committee. So I, I, I suspect it will be the same with Speaker Phelan, where he's not micromanaging the committees. Right. But obviously, if you have the Speaker's assent on something or the Speaker's interest in something, then you're more likely to see that get from your committee through calendars to the floor and actually, you know, be debated and, and get a vote. Um, well, I mean, if, I have a, basically a whole new committee. I mean, Keith Bell, Representative Bell is about the only one and, and uh, Chair Murr are yeah. the only ones that were there last session. We've got a bunch of you know new members. And so this is going to be an experience for them also. Uh, that may not have been, in, uh, you know, as involved with the criminal justice system uh, in the past. So it, it's yeah. going to be something where we have to get that learning curve over and then get to the heart of it, uh, of, of the things. Let me ask the last question, uh, Chair, on the, uh, the subject of race more broadly. I want to speak to you now, and not as chair of the Criminal Jurisprudence Committee, but as chair of the Black Caucus, because you are now the chair of the Black Caucus as well. Um, and there are more, it was more work to be done, surely, on issues that have a component related to race than criminal justice, right? This pandemic has put any number of things in which there are real disparities on display from education, where learning loss in communities of color has been greater than the average to healthcare, where barriers to accessing providers and basic services have translated into dire outcomes. As the chair of the Black Caucus, how do you think about what your priorities are in this session? Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about criminal justice for reasons that don't need to be explained, but how, how do you focus your energy as you head into the, a, a session that, as we've said, is going to be limited in scope, limited in attention span? Well, you know, just I, you're right. We have a lot of uh, systemic racism uh, flowing through other parts of government. When you're talking about education and this digital divide, if you look at the cell towers where they're located, they're usually not as prevalent in lower income areas. And so, you know, that limits somebody's ability to stay connected with their virtual learning. Um, and then also, uh, you know, the digital divide is an issue. Uh, you know, thank goodness the governor has made broadband, expanding broadband access a priority. Um, so let's just make sure that it's not only rural areas that get that uh, support from the state, but also those urban areas where there's low income and limited digital access. Um, another thing that you, you, you hit it on the nail um, about healthcare, you know, we know that uh, there is limited access to quality healthcare in neighborhoods. Most people don't have health insurance when it comes down to that. And so their, their doctor is the emergency room. 
So right. we have to really, you know, if we could expand Medicaid, that would be amazing. But we're so entangled into this 1115 waiver program that it's going to be it's going to take time to transition. So we've got to find a way to transition from our reliance on this 1115 waiver, which requires healthcare providers to create a plan, pay for it up front, and then get reimbursed if they show it's successful, uh, to a complete Medicaid expansion going forward. Uh, we also have to make sure that uh, economic opportunities exist for people of color. We're still seeing a lag in contracting with the state uh, for blacks. And so we have to continue to work on addressing these issues. Uh, so, you know, I think that economic opportunities, education, healthcare, uh, you know, we could go on and on about the racism that is, is embedded in these systems, but we've got to break those down and, and have a way to um, build up people and, and, yeah. and get them to have the level playing field. You've been listening to Point of Order, a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, State Representative Nicole Collier, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Sam Houston State University and Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 87th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.